I can finally see the grass in my yard again more than a week after that big snowstorm. It's nice to have some green back. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. Is the snow all melting in your, your area? Pretty much. I, I mean, I went for a walk this morning and I still had to dodge a bunch of mounds of snow. Yeah, but yeah. it's going away. It's, I mean, isn't it supposed to get into the 50s this weekend? I'm, I, I, I hope we have like a, a, a nice break from all of this awful snow that we had. Yeah, I would love to see it be gone. <laughs> I just wanted to snow more. <laughs> of course you do. The oh, up. I still have mounds of leaves on my tree lawn that they won't pick up because they're covered with ice and snow. So let's begin. How is the coronavirus turning the lame duck legislative session in Ohio into complete disarray? And what does that mean for all the things lawmakers wanted to do in these last weeks of 2020? Jane Cahoon, we talked about the irony of this the other day. All these people that refuse to have a mask order in their chamber are dropping like flies and they may not have the votes to do anything they want to do. But there's some serious stuff that we're not going to get done now, right? Or might not. Well, for sure. So first of all, we have at least four lawmakers all in the House who are uh, who tested positive with the virus. And then we've got several others who have been tested and are awaiting their results. Uh, They they might not be feeling well or they're just being cautious. But unbelievably, we had Wednesday's House session and today's Senate, Senate session both canceled. The House Finance Committee didn't even have a quorum to hold votes on Wednesday, they had like 15 of the 33 committee members with excused absences. So uh, and then other committee hearings got got canceled. Uh, Of course, they're not saying this is all due to coronavirus, but well, you know, anyway. So what that means to answer your question is that they only have next week. That's the last week that they have session days scheduled to hold floor votes on all these consequential bills including a state capital budget, the House Bill 6 revamp, the criminal sentencing reform bill. And uh, we did find out yesterday, I think we pretty much put the final nail in the coffin of the uh, school funding overhaul bill. That's pretty much dead in the Senate for this session anyway. They want to put it in next year's budget bill instead. So I guess they don't feel under pressure to to get that one done. But And then, of course, there's the... Um, potential override of of Governor DeWine's veto of that legislation that stripped him of his power to issue statewide coronavirus orders. So it's really not clear at all whether they're going to have enough votes. I mean, we got two Republicans sick. So I, you know, that's not clear at all that they'll muster the votes for that. Well, and what we know, because Cleveland Sewage showed it, is this is getting worse. We're going to have a bigger surge. And when, when one of them said, well, you know, in the last session, we came back after Christmas in the final week to do some stuff. Well, the week after Christmas, you could have a dozen <laughs> more people there. This is not yeah. going to get better. You're not going to have less coronavirus with your membership. You're going to have more. The uh, yeah. the sad sad about the school thing, that's more a Matt Dolan. He spiked it, claiming, oh, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it back. They were so close to finally getting this done. And the fact that they yeah. won't get it done tells me that they have no intention of getting it done. Well, I, I think we need to also call out Matt Huffman on that. Sorry to interrupt. Who's the, the future Senate president? Uh, he seems to not want that to go anywhere in the lame duck. And he is uh, their leader. So I think right. uh, some of the responsibility is is on him for that too. But 
you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. They, they've supposedly implemented these safety protocols for committees in the house, including, you know, limiting the number of people who are present for, for certain hearings on, on bills. But the, but the house speaker, Bob Cup says, you know, oh, he's asked members to wear masks and masks and socially distance, but, you know, he can't force them to take those precautions. And Which as is we completely know, not true. that's just not <laughs> true. He can enforce it. He's the speaker. He sets the rules. If he wanted to, he could say, you're not coming in this chamber unless you're wearing a mask. Let's protect each other. Let's get some work done. But you know, it's a product of their own making because they all decided, don't tread on me. I have individual rights. And so they're not able to get the job done. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how many more of them end up with this in the, right. in the in the next few weeks. Can I just tell you how much I dread when they do come back next week, assuming they do have a session next week? It's going to be one of these marathons where they're meeting into the wee hours and cramming through all this stuff, which... I just feel is no way to conduct the public's business, not to mention the <laughs> the stress it puts on our reporters. Well, and they do sleazy things when they're rushing things through. Yeah. I just wonder whether the healthy members will show up. I mean, you know, we're talking about the people that have the coronavirus, but the healthy Wouldn't ones you? don't want. No, I mean, I would say forget <laughs> it. We'll take this up in the next session. And so they may not have the vote. I mean, the, the irony of not having the votes to override the veto to strip one of his powers <laughs> to curb the coronavirus. I mean, I just love it. That's like one of those factoids that we'll be talking about for years. How these bozos fighting the ability to fight the coronavirus ended up getting the coronavirus and lost all their tools. It's this week in the CLE. How is Ohio trying to bring consistency and order to how police across the state deal with protests? Chris Ranowski, this feels a little bit like window dressing more than it is a genuine tool, mostly because it's not mandatory, but it's something, right? Sir, you read my mind. I, I was actually thinking the exact same thing. Um, so uh, Mike DeWine uh, put together this thing called the Collaborative Community Police Advisory Board. Um, this came to light or came, came to be in recent years after a lot of high profile incidents involving police. And last week, they, they adopted some new standards that would put limits on things like chokeholds and vascular neck restraints and, and recommending that officers only use them if, if to defend themselves or others from serious injury or death. I think the the issue that you were kind of referring to in your setup here is that these are just recommendations, that there's no there's no real mandatory thing that he's creating here. This is just some uh, set of standards. They're going to sort of trickle down to local law enforcement agencies to decide whether they want to adopt them or not. You know, this, you know, came to light again this year as a result of the protests that happened after the death of, of Minneapolis resident George Floyd, who who died while he was being restrained on the ground with a, his, a knee on his neck. And, and he died, you know, while in police custody and, you know, as a result of that, we had our own protests here in places like Columbus and Cleveland. And, you know, there was some back and forth that was out of control on both sides. But, you know, you had a, a pretty overwhelming police response, especially especially in Columbus. So I, I would call this a start. But, you know, without without any teeth and without any any sort of punishment for doing such, you know, I, I just I don't know how effective this will be. And and frankly, a lot of departments are individually adopting this stuff. But. You know, I, I think well, this let me would, ask you, let me, let me ask you this. If mm -hmm. if I don't do this, 
and I don't get the voluntary state certification and my cops kill somebody or do something bad and I get sued, I would think that the attorneys suing would be able to make some hay of that. That Ohio has established these generally accepted practices and they have a voluntary certification program and this department didn't do it. It shows their reckless disregard and that's how so-and-so got killed or maimed or hurt. Does it create a little bit more liability and responsibility for the departments to actually do it? It might, but, you know, I, I don't see a lot of, I mean, where, where are, where are departments being really punished in court anyway? I mean, you know, these things never, yeah, but they never go to trial. These things never get raised in, in issue. They always settle. They always, they always admit no fault. And they always, you know, and they pay money and these things go away. And then we, we talk about it again in a couple of months. So, you know, I mean, to say to say that these these things will be challenged in court, I I don't I, I mean, it just doesn't really happen that often. You know, we didn't well, see Samaria Rice get up in court and talk about this. And and we didn't see Tim Lohman have to be grilled by attorneys. You know, it just it rarely happens. You know, I mean, you can make a case, you can make the case, but I, I just. I don't know if it moves the needle one way or the other. I, I, well, maybe I think, it just creates a bigger amount of money people settle for, and that might be an inducement. Money often will drive mayors and people. Anyway, I, you're, I look, it's, it's not I mandatory. Guess, like yeah. you said, not mandatory, so kind of kind of meaningless, but, <laughs> but it's something. Okay, you're listening this week in the CLE. Why can't anyone tell us whether Browns fans attending Monday night's game downtown which will end close to midnight, will be in violation of Governor Mike DeWine's 10 p.m. coronavirus curfew. Laura Johnson, it seems like it's pretty automatic. They will be in violation of the coronavirus curfew. But when we asked Mike DeWine's office about it, they hadn't really thought about it. What's going on? Um, just let me first say that I love that this is my third football question in a row on this podcast. <laughs> no, this is a coronavirus question, Laura. It's not a sports question. At least I edited this story, so I have an explanation. Um, this conflict apparently never occurred to them. It didn't occur to us either until our um, editor, Mike Norman, brought it up on our regular morning call on Tuesday, like, Oh, what's going to happen with this curfew? And we're like, oh, yeah, how come the Browns get to break it? So reporter Cameron Fields called the Browns, the city of Cleveland, and the governor, and no one had a good explanation for this. So here's the deal. It's this 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. It's been in place for uh, three weeks now. It's going to be extended today. And who knows if the extension that Mike DeWine is supposed to give will have any more restrictions. But uh, the Browns are scheduled to host Monday Night Football that starts at 8.15 p.m. And normally 12,000 fans are allowed in the stadium in pods. So if they're all there, that means 12,000 people are going to be violating curfew. The Browns are operating under the assumption that they'll be allowed to have the fans. They have not been told otherwise, but they don't have a specific exemption. We called the governor's office. Dan Tierney, the spokesman, said he would get back to Cameron when he had an answer. That hasn't happened yet. Um this this is not just a one-time issue, though. The Bengals are actually set to host the Steelers for Monday Night Football the following week, a week from Monday. And then the Browns are supposed to have a Sunday night game that same week. So, But uh, this isn't... This isn't really on the Browns because the curfew doesn't apply to the businesses. It applies to people. So it's the fans who go to the game who would be in violation. What's really interesting about this is, you know, Mike DeWine has been pretty good about working with the teams to give them some fans. It started with 6,000, went to 12,000, and he looked at their the way they were going to seat people, thought that they had put some science into it. 
so so you got to think he might give them dispensation for this but if he does the casinos are going to start to howl they're going to say wait a minute wait a minute how come they can have people go to that we can't have people come to us we had a story earlier this week we discussed where they're losing their shirts because nobody can nobody's gambling between 10 and 5 they're closed down and i imagine restaurants might start to scream about this saying wait a minute we have to close at 10 o'clock but but football gets a dispensation so it's going to be very tricky area i somebody speculated well Dwayne will say they're all outside. So that that's the difference. But man, oh man, that's uh you're playing with fire when you start to give dispensation to the moneyed NFL team and nobody else. Well, can I this is Chris Wernowski. Can I just say that you you could create a just like a perfect microcosm of how this country works and its response to the coronavirus. You lay all the fault on the people. And you carve out an exception for the owners of these teams and you say, well, they, you know, the teams won't get in trouble, but everybody who shows up is going to be at risk of being in violation of some law. And that is, to me, that sums up everything about well he was very specific with his curfew to say this applies to the to the people and so you know the browns are saying if you like go out to get a pizza or you're picking up something else i mean there are a zillion holes in this curfew well no that's the trick then that's the trick the browns will serve food at the stadium (laughs) this is this is people going for takeout Twelve thousand takeout orders uh, they'll well, all be fine. They, they, they can't serve alcohol after a certain time, right? Didn't they get? Didn't Airmark their alcohol? Didn't they get in trouble for that? They, Wasn't they, that they, they, they didn't realize they were under the same restriction as everybody. See, see, the team didn't get in trouble for that either. They managed to skirt everything. It'll be. I my, my bet is he'll address this today, and if he doesn't address it today, we plan to ask him about it. If we get a good spot in line, Jane Coon, we haven't had a lot of good spots in line lately. Please do something about that. You're listening. <laughs> This week in the CLE. How many people in the Cuyahoga County Jail have the coronavirus and is it a record? And what happened there after all the steps that were taken that we cherished back in the spring to keep an outbreak from occurring? Chris Ranowski, this is very distressing. Yeah, we we went from being kind of a, a model jail in how we got people out and we got people safe. And, and, you know, we very early on in this, people need to remember that we, we actually did a very good job of making sure that there wasn't spread in the jail. But as of, as of Wednesday, uh, we have hit an all time high of number of inmates in the jail with 78 of them uh, testing positive for the coronavirus. The previous high was 61 on way back in May, on May 13th and May 8th. So that's, uh, that represents 22% of all the total number of inmate coronavirus cases uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And another 373 inmates are in a specialized area of the jail uh, for inmates exposed uh, to others who have tested positive. So we have reduced the jail population down to an all-time low of 950 people at, at, at one point uh, during this pandemic. But, you know, we, we started having court again where they started, you know, arresting people again. And, you know, we've, we've had that number go back up to like 1500. Uh, there's, thir- there's currently 1300 in the jail right now, which is still, you know, you know, when we were having conversations about this a year ago, you know, not on this podcast, but, you know, elsewhere that, you know, I mean, the jail population was up to 2000, 2100, 2200. So it's still, com- you know, comparably low, but this is, still got to be concerning to the county and and to the people who run the jail. 
Well, it's your turn for me to ask questions that I don't think you can answer. So right. have they been diligent about getting the misdemeanors out of there? Have they have they maintained the vigilance that they had that you talked about in the spring about emptying the jail of the people that don't need to be there? I, you know, to be honest, I don't think they have, but you know, it, it's, I, I mean, that's, that's a speculation. I mean, I, I, I don't know that we've had, you know, I mean, we went from a, a population of 950 to 1384. I can't imagine those are all felonies. And, and I can't imagine that those are all the most violent people. I, it doesn't seem statistically possible, but it is something that we should probably look into again. So uh, but what sounds like happened is, is the coronavirus waned during the summer, even though people were predicting it's going to come roaring back this fall, which it has done. They dropped their guard. And I, I think I think what what, it, you know, I mean, they, they have basically canceled most in-person court procedures till, you know, I, I think they said December and then they were going to revisit it. Um, so I think we're I think there's still nothing going on at the courthouse. But what what's interesting is that they didn't turn to the jail and say, OK, we have to address this again. And, you know, there wasn't that urgency that there was at the beginning when you had the prosecutor, the public defender, county officials, jail officials all you know, getting together and trying to solve this problem. You know, I think they, I think, you know, they, they think that they had, they, they established a protocol to keep people safe in the jail. And I think it's just, you know, it's like any other congregate setting that you just, you, it's, it's, you know, it's difficult, if not impossible to, to contain it. The Armand Buddhist administration has proven itself completely incapable of running the jail. I wonder if they should just turn it over to Beachwood. You know, Beachwood figured out how to pop up with restaurants. Maybe they'll come up with a solution. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the abortion bill that is heading to Mike DeWine's desk? And what are some other steps being taken in the legislature about abortion in this lame duck session? Things that may not happen if they can't get the votes because of the coronavirus. Jane Cahoon, this this one bill is moving forward in a big way. There are activists trying to persuade him not to sign it, which he's going to sign it. Let's face it. He's right. very strong on this issue. But there's some other stuff in the works, too. Right. Well, first, I should say this bill that he probably will sign requires the burial or cremation of fetal remains from surgical abortions. And violating it carries a first degree misdemeanor penalty. It requires abortion clinics to, to pay for the cremations and burials. And it offers pregnant women the option to choose how to dispose of the remains. You know, the supporters say this is the humane thing to do. And then those who support abortion rights say it's it's just another way to shame women and make the whole process more more difficult. But the uh, the other legislation that you asked about still has a little ways to go. So I don't know if it's it's going to make it, but it did pass the Senate and it's in a House committee and it would prohibit medication abortions from being performed via telemedicine. And as we know, a lot more people are turning to telemedicine these days to protect themselves during the pandemic. So this would this would force women to, to show up in person to get the um, medication abortions. Yeah, the legislature, which very dominated by Republicans, has made no secret that it, it really wants to stop abortions. And so it's we've seen just nonstop whittling back of the ability of women to seek them. And this seems like more of the same. And, you know, you can't we're not going to let you do it by telemedicine. We're going to make it that much more difficult for you 
to to get it. So you'll have to set up an in-person visit and you'll have to travel to wherever that visit is and then you can get the medication abortion and the idea of of the clinics having to to deal with the remains the way they have to do it. It makes it a little more expensive, a little more difficult for people. It's just it, it, right. it's fascinating how the, the, over the years it's just been one after another after another. The Ohio legislature, the my body, my choice uh, people who are in that body right now who are probably positive with the coronavirus are making these decisions. Yes, they are, Chris Ranowski. <laughs> All, right. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there a chance I can see the Northern Lights for the first time in my life right here in Cleveland tonight? Laura Johnston, what's the chance? Yeah, it's a small chance. It's a 20 to 30% chance. So I'm wondering if I should stay up way past my bedtime to try <laughs> and see them. Uh, the chance is great as the farther north you go. So the shore of Lake Erie would be your best bet. And hopefully there won't be clouds. Uh, the National Weather Service in Cleveland, uh, their office tweeted about the Aurora Borealis on Tuesday. Apparently, this is because of a solar storm. It's pushing those northern lights south. And the Space Weather Prediction Center, I did not know that was a thing, like draws a latitude line around the country where you could possibly see these curtains of colored light. So we're just barely in that that um, circle. So you're from Canada. You, you've yes. seen it before, right? No, I've never seen. Never I don't seen like, it. I'm not from the North Pole. Um, no, <laughs> I was hoping when I went up to Mackinac this summer that maybe I would get to see it. Um, but no, I've never seen the Northern Lights. Have any of you guys? I've never seen it. No. How late do you have to stay up, Laura? This is Jane Cahoon. Uh, between 11 and midnight. Oh, okay. going on, Jane, if you're no, up, right? This, this, this I, I don't think I'll be this, up. This guy's been gray as hell for days. Is there really any chance we're going to have a starry sunny. night? Right now it is sunny. So okay. maybe the, the weather service said that they, they I mean, of course, as we talked to them uh, yeah, uh, on Wednesday, so it's hard to predict exactly, right? But they didn't think there would be total cloud cover. Well, this well, is you get a twofer. You get a twofer because you get the Christmas star for the first time in 800 years from Earth. You'll be able to see the two planets aligning, and that's known as the Christmas star. What is it? Uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And, uh, Saturn. Yeah. Chris Warnowski. Oh yeah, I was just wondering. I mean, is it? Is will this be visible from the city? I mean, will the light pollution from the city make it difficult to see? I mean, would it be better to drive outside of the city to see it? Do you have any? Idea. That would be my guess. It's always a lot easier and the, the night is a lot darker the further you get from all of that light pollution. So I think the one thing about, you know, viewing it over Lake Erie is that you don't have tall buildings or lights, you know, in your view. Um, so that's another reason. And, and that you you can't just go any no further north unless you're on a boat. Hmm. Okay. That's a tough, that's a gamble because uh, this has happened before where they say you might see it and I don't think we've ever seen it. Okay, we'll check it out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's up with the two Amazon delivery drivers who were carjacked late last month as they made their rounds in Cleveland? Chris Anaski, this is worth talking about because this is the height of the delivery season. We've right. all relied on Amazons and the FedExes and the UPSs more than ever before. And if they start getting carjacked at gunpoint and having their stuff stolen, it's going to change the game a good bit. So what happened here? Yeah, this is this is sort of an escalation of of the you know we've gone from stealing packages off of porches and everybody installing you know 
very personal Orwellian surveillance on their front porch by way of Amazon's ring cameras. And then, and, and now people are just stealing the trucks outright. We had uh, two instances of, uh, of this happening within a two hour span on November 25th, uh, in the city's Fairfax, uh, neighborhood. And, and people just went up and, and pointed a gun at a delivery driver and said, don't make me kill you. And the robber jumped in the truck and took off. You know, I, I, there were 53 packages in one of the trucks and a couple dozen probably in the other truck. And, and it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, this was, this is pretty wild. And, and it's, you know, it's not like these, these trucks are indiscreet. They say Amazon right on the side of them. So, you know, they're making deliveries, you know, they're making Christmas deliveries. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, do you send out unmarked cars? I, you know, I mean, it's, I understand they paint their trucks for marketing purposes, but you know, are you, did anybody think that they might be making their, their drivers a target? It just, it's an, it's an interesting escalation of this problem. I wonder if the doorbell cameras that have become so, so everywhere, everybody's got them has scared people from doing the porch piracy. And this is a, an easier way of grabbing stuff. I also saw on the next door site up in my neighborhood, somebody found a box where it'd been stolen off a porch. The flap had been ripped open. They saw it was a children's book that wasn't valuable to them. So they chucked it, but they, 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 when ripping it, they had taken away the address labels. So they're trying to figure out where it should go. It's uh, no, it's, well, but the other thing is people are working from home. So it's, it's much, much, much more difficult to, yeah, that's to, true. To actually, you know, I mean, everybody's home, so you're not going to rob somebody when they're home. That's true. It's harder to do the porch piracy when somebody's sitting inside and you get immediate notification that your package is on your porch with a photo of it on your porch often. I, I just but, think you like to say porch piracy. I, I do. It's, uh, <laughs> I have. <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Jen Kuhn, I'm throwing you a curveball. We talked about this yesterday, but now that was speculation. Now we have some official word. Who are the likely replacements for Marsha Fudge as the congressperson for the east side of Cleveland? Well, perhaps we should talk about who's not running. That that would be like a smaller list. <laughs> it's funny because Seth Richardson made a bunch of calls on this and uh just about everybody he talked to was interested, but two candidates for sure said they're running, and that's uh, Chantel Brown, uh, the county councilwoman and um, head of the Democratic Party, and uh, the ever-politically political, ambitious Jeff Johnson, former Cleveland City Council members. They both said they're, they're, they're definitely in it. And then uh, Nina Turner, who we talked about yesterday, who has a national profile now, uh, she filed paperwork with the with the Federal Elections Commission, which pretty strongly suggests she's she's going to run. So we'll probably be hearing something from her soon. And then, um, as I said, a whole bunch of other people told Seth they were considering it. Uh, Blaine Griffin, uh, the Reverend Joanza Colvin, um, Amelia Sykes. Uh, who else am I missing? Um, you know, Dennis. Uh, Dennis. Dennis. Oh, right. Dennis Kucinich. He'll run for anything. Mayor, that. I, I, is there an open spot? Let me put my name in. I love when people talk about me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's uh, who who knows what's going to happen with this. Or I think we also talked to yesterday how the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party could exert some muscle here. And certainly Marsha Fudge, I'm sure, will have something to say about her preferred successor. So, 
Um, How much weight do you think that would carry, though? I mean, say she came out for Chantel Brown, who's the head of the party and has has Marsha Fudge's support. Would th- that's not gonna that's gonna not gonna stop Nina Turner has some real name recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not stop Amelia Sykes because she's from Akron and and she may not feel like she's beholden. I, I just I wonder how much Marsha Fudge's endorsement might mean when this is the first time this seat has been open for a free for all in a long time, and a lot of people want it. Yeah, I don't know. You know, Sabrina Eaton's been working on another story about about Fudge, and and she talked to Mayor Jackson, I think, yesterday, who seemed very deferential to to Fudge. You know, like the Congresswoman's going to decide here what the process is, and you know, whatever she says the rules are, that's what it's going to be. So, I wow. mean, do you think that carries some weight? I, you know, that was his yeah, take. On I guess it. so. I, I just, I don't, yeah, but look, we've all dealt with Nina Turner. <laughs> I don't think she's going to, <laughs> or who, what the system is. No, it's a, no. And, and yeah, she, as we said, she's, she's, she's a national uh, figure now and she'll, she'll have access to um, money. So, yeah. well, and she might have a message that resonates. I mean, she, she, I mean, she'll she'll talk about turning things upside down that, that, you know, she's very much in the style of AOC and Bernie Sanders, that we need radical change in Congress that might play in this district. It, it certainly play in Cleveland Heights, but it would. You know, I mean, I it, that would be an, it's going to be an interesting battle. You know, Jeff Johnson runs for everything. Dennis Kucinich, you know, whether he's interesting as a candidate or not, it's not known. Nina Turner makes this. It's going to be fun to cover. How quickly would you have a special election? Well, um, the governor's office said, you know, hey, hold on, wait, it's too soon here. She's got to be confirmed. Marsha Fudge has to be confirmed by the Senate. And that's obviously not happening until after Biden takes office on January 20th. Uh, so so I would say like maybe February sometime we could see him uh, scheduling a special election. I don't know for when, how, how far out he would go with it. So it might be during what is traditionally the state's primary election in the spring. Could be, could be. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good stuff, guys. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news. 